This morning we are back in Revelation and we're looking at chapters 15 and 16, which I just read for you. And let me review briefly, since it's been a couple of weeks since we were in Revelation. We have finished a cycle of visions at the end of chapter 14, in which at the end of 14 the earth was harvested. This is the prophesied separation of the wheat from the tares at the end of the age. This is the outpouring of the wrath of God, as far as I understand it, and those who interpret through the same paradigm that I'm using here. Because I'm interpreting Revelation in a cyclical way, I would understand the end of chapter 14, the harvest of the earth, to correspond also with the end of chapter 6, when unbelievers call on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Also, I would understand that harvest of the earth described in the end of chapter 14 to correspond with the seventh seal as well as with the seventh trumpet which are the endings of their respective cycles. In the cyclical way of understanding Revelation, which I told you in the introductory message is the paradigm we're going to be using as we work our way through the sermon series. It's not the only orthodox, acceptable interpretation of Revelation, but for the sake of not being in Revelation until the year 2045, we are having necessarily to uh, condense and summarize and so on and so forth. I believe that the cyclical view is correct, and so I'm trying to teach you through that. And in the cyclical way of understanding Revelation, John sees several cycles of visions which begin and end and then start again. But each one of these cycles corresponds to the cycles before and after it in terms of the substance of what it covers. It gives us, each one of these cycles gives us a symbolic vision of the period of time between Christ's first coming which is basically more or less at the time the book was written, decades later, but we're talking about a first century vision of John the Apostle, until Christ returns and we enter the eternal state. Revelation covers in varying cycles, which all cover basically this same time period, the same substance from different angles, different points of view, different symbolism, etc., etc., and it takes us from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming through these various repeating cycles. When at His second coming, Christ will return to judge the earth, separate the wheat from the tares, wipe away every tear from our eyes, and live with us forever, having ushered in the eternal state. So here at the beginning of 15, since we just finished the cycle at the end of 14, we are starting a new cycle. The cycle we are now beginning is typically called the seven bowls or the seven vials, as it's put in the King James Version. So we have had the seven seals and we've had the seven trumpets and now we have the seven bowls. And there is no additional section of seven in the book of Revelation. But just as we had a cycle immediately prior to these seven bowls, which was a cycle itself, but didn't use the seven motif. Likewise, after this seven bowls section, there's another cycle. 
but it also doesn't use the seven motif. There, the one that preceded described the woman and the dragon, the two beasts, the 144,000, and the harvest of the earth, but didn't use the seven paradigm or motif. Likewise, there will be one non-seven cycle which follows this one. Well, actually, there will be a couple more. But this is the last seven. And so as Greg Beale says, the bowls come last in the sequence of formal sevenfold visions seen by the seer. This is one possible way of interpreting what John means, that they are the last in chapter 15 and verse 1. Beale expands. Last more likely indicates the sequential order in which John saw the visions rather than the chronological order of the events depicted in the visions. This would mean that the bulls are the last formal series of the sevenfold visions that John saw after he had seen the visions of the seals and the trumpets and those recorded in chapters 12 to 14. Therefore, the bulls do not have to be understood as the last events of history, but are the last of the formal sevenfold visions which John saw. An important thing to note in interpreting Revelation is that in Beale's words, quote, throughout Revelation, the phrase, after these things, indicates the sequential order in which John saw the visions, not necessarily the order of the events they depict, end quote. I'm reviewing all this because this is important and relevant to remember for our study today because chapter 15 opens up a new cycle but shows us essentially the outcome of this cycle before even the first bowl is poured out. The structure of the seven bowls cycle in chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation is not the events of chapter 15 happen and then the events of chapter 16 happen. Rather, the structure of the seven bowls cycle in chapters 15 and 16 is chapter 15 shows us the glory of salvation on the other side of the bowls, and chapter 16 shows us the glory of the judgment of the bowls. Let me try to un- unpack and expand on that this morning, beginning with chapter 15 and the glory of salvation on the other side of the bowls. We all know that salvation is glorious, right? When, when something is trivial or unimportant or irrelevant, we pay it no mind. We might call it a light thing. But when something is significant and powerful and important, we are captivated. And we might call it weighty or heavy. And that's what glory means, most literally, is weight or heaviness. And salvation is a weighty thing, regardless of what kind of salvation we are talking about. If we watch a video of a little kid being saved from the water, for example, let's say a little kid fell in a raging river, and here he is crying and shouting out for his mommy, and somehow somebody goes in or, you know, a dog jumps in and grabs him by the collar or whatever and pulls that kid out. We find ourselves, wow, that was powerful. That was weighty. That was significant. That was 
it was we would wake it differently than we would watch than we would, for example, just a video of some teenagers doing a TikTok dance or something, right? We would say, okay, one is light and trivial, and the other one is heavier, right? We all know that salvation is heavy, is weighty, is glorious. In Revelation 15 and verse 3, we read of the saints on the other side of a sea singing what is called the Song of Moses. I saw, chapter 15 and verse 2, what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the Song of Moses. But though there are two songs of Moses recorded for us in the Old Testament, the song here in Revelation chapter 15 is not a direct quotation from either of these songs. So it seems that we should expect, rather than citing from the Old Testament, it seems that we should expect rather substantial correspondence or correspondence in substance between this song in Revelation 15 and one or the other or perhaps both of the songs of Moses in the Old Testament. So which of the songs of Moses in the Old Testament fits best here? Well, one of the songs of Moses occurs in Deuteronomy 32, which in God's providence we were actually just studying maybe a month ago or two months ago. And it is a song that Moses taught the Israelites at the Lord's behest, indicating primarily that the people would turn away from God and be judged for their sin. It's primarily, in terms of its substance, it's primarily a negative song. Though there are themes of grace, as we saw when we were looking at it in our evening series, and though there are themes even of vengeance and vindication, in Deuteronomy 32, the context doesn't really fit this song in Revelation nearly as well as the other song of Moses, which is found in Exodus 15 after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. You remember, God's people were in Egypt. Everybody knows this story, right? God's people were in Egypt and they were enslaved. And what did God do? God came and plagued the Egyptians. God came and plagued the land and poured out His judgment upon that place. But the plagues didn't overcome, the plagues didn't kill, the plagues didn't destroy the people of God. But rather, God delivered His people through the plague such that they were not overcome by them and brought them out the other side of the plagues. And He brings them out to be encamped between the sea and Egypt where they see Pharaoh coming after them with his army and with the chariots, right? And then what happens? God brings his people to the other side of the sea where he does not allow the enemies of his people to follow in order that they might not chase them anymore, in order, in order that they may not no, no longer terrorize them, in order that they may no longer suffer in order that God's people may be fully and finally free. And on the other side of the sea, 
Moses sings a song. That context fits so much better with Revelation chapter 15. We will circle back around to this train of thought in a second. But let us first remind ourselves of a couple of things that I shared with you when I preached on Revelation chapter 4. I was trying to help you understand, back in Revelation chapter 4, about the four living creatures around the throne. And I argued that the four living creatures around the throne in Revelation chapter 4 are the seraphim who appear both in Isaiah 6 and in Ezekiel 1. Seraphim are a type of angels. In Isaiah 6, the angels around God's throne are explicitly identified as seraphim. Whereas in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, they are not explicitly identified as seraphim. However, their function and appearance is remarkably similar in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4. They are creatures that surround God's throne and cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy. And in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, they have six wings. This leads me to think it's not too much of a stretch to say that we know from Isaiah 6 that the six-winged creatures who are around God's throne who say, holy, 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 are the seraphim. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that when we see six-winged creatures in Revelation 4 saying, holy, 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 these are the same creatures and these are the seraphim. However, in Ezekiel 1, they only appear to have four wings. Though their description is almost identical to the four living creatures in Revelation 4 with faces of a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle. Why does Ezekiel perceive them to have only four wings then? I argued back when we were in Revelation chapter 4 that this is because in Ezekiel's vision these creatures were under the sea of crystal, or the expanse of crystal, the sea of glass, as it is, the expanse of crystal, as it is called in Ezekiel 1. And therefore, because the sea of glass was above them, and above that sea of glass was the throne and the presence of God, because in Ezekiel 1, the angels are not there where the throne is and where the presence of God is, but are actually under the sea of glass with men here on earth, they had no need to cover their faces before the presence of God as they had need to in heaven. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And with two, they covered their faces. In Ezekiel 1, they had no need to cover their faces. Now here's my leap of logic. I think that they probably tucked those wings like a bird rather than just letting them awkwardly dangle. And the way that maybe a small child, if he had never seen a bird fly and saw one walking, might think that it didn't have wings. And then lo and behold, all of a sudden the bird pops up and starts flapping and the small child is surprised because he didn't know that that was a flying creature with wings. Therefore, these creatures don't have to 
cover their faces before God when they are below the sea of glass. And so presumably they do something with their wings and tuck them away rather than just letting them hang loose. I think that the, the things telling us these are all the same creatures in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4 and in Ezekiel 1 far outweigh the discrepancy between six wings and four wings. And I think the fact that Ezekiel beheld them with four wings on earth and we see them with six wings in heaven because they cover their faces before God. I think that's a perfectly acceptable way to harmonize it all together. The reason I bring up these four living creatures, because you're probably thinking to yourself, why are we still dealing with these guys? They just make a small appearance in Revelation 15. One of the four living creatures in Revelation 15, 7 gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. You're probably wondering why are we spending so much time talking about these creatures? And the reason I'm bringing up these four living creatures, or the, the seraphim again, as I take them to be, is actually not for the sake of understanding the seraphim. But I had to go into all that to remind you of the sea of glass and the fact that in Ezekiel's vision and in Revelation, God dwells above the sea of glass and men dwell below the sea of glass. In other words, in the visions below the sea of glass is where we presently are above the sea of glass is where God is and where the saints who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name are and or will be in other words we have been in some sense, rescued already. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is also a sense in which we're still very much dealing with the effects of sin. And our own sin, and the, the, the guilt and the shame that we feel about that, the way it disrupts our relationships with other people and with God, as well as other people's sin against us, and the way that that hurts us, and the way that it affects, again, our relationships. We're also living in a world which is very much under God's judgment. Whoever does not believe, John chapter 3 says, is condemned already. What do you have to do to come under the judgment of God? The answer is absolutely nothing. Everyone who is here, unless you are in Christ, you are already under the judgment of God. This world is cursed. God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Moreover, we are about to see that God is pouring out plagues, as it were, upon this world. And so there is a sense in which we have been saved, but there is a sense in which we are being saved or have not yet been saved. Therefore, there is a sense in which we will be saved. We have not experienced the fullness and the finality of our salvation. There is a sense in which we are like the Israelites brought out of Egypt. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But lo and behold, Pharaoh is still on the scene. Right? And the Egyptians are still on the scene. And we're not yet utterly free. But listen here. God is going to bring us across the sea. 
where our enemies cannot follow us, where our enemies cannot come. There is a sea which we will get to the other side of where we will sing a song like Moses sang on the other side of the sea in Exodus 15. I think that this is basically what is what the imagery of chapter 15 here is that God certainly is going to judge this world, is going to plague this world, that God certainly is going to pour out His wrath, but He's going to bring His people safely through all of those plagues, and He's going to bring them to the other side of the sea than we are on right now, where we will be fully and finally free, where our enemies can no longer follow us, where our enemies can no longer terrorize us. And just as Moses saw fit to break out in song, when he got across the sea and was fully and finally free. So when we get to the other side, we're going to sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And you know why it's called the song of the Lamb? Because it's because of the Lamb that we get across the sea. It's because of the, the Lamb that we are saved. It's because of the Lamb that, that we get there. And so it's a song of Moses because we're singing like Moses sang under similar circumstances. But it's a song of the Lamb because it's all based upon His Word. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Notice the thematic similarity with Exodus chapter 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Notice this idea that God has done something. God has worked. And there is no God like Him. Moses goes on to sing about the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. The trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Look, the chiefs of Edom are not the king of the nations. The leaders of Moab are not the king of the nations. Yahweh is the king of the nations. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Revelation 15, like Exodus 15, is focused on God showing Himself forth as glorious as a glorious, saving God of His people, as a God who is king above all other kings, as a God who is a deliverer, as a God who is unlike any other supposed God. The gods of the nations cannot compete. Who is like our God? The saints on the other side of the sea in Revelation 15 like Moses on the other side of the sea in Exodus 15, 
are celebrating the glory of God's salvation. Now notice that though we are recipients, though we are beneficiaries of the salvation that God works for us, notice that this song is not like, what, look what you have done for me. Look, O oh Lord, how you have dealt with me. I am so blessed. Right? I am a friend of God. Right? <laughs> so on and so The way that, look, there is a time and place for songs like that and so on and so forth. But there is also a time and place to get the emphasis off us. Even salvation is actually not ultimately about us. Even salvation is not, even the fact that I am justified by grace through faith. And I will not perish, but have eternal life. Because I have trusted in Jesus. And God's Holy Spirit has come to indwell me. And Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And God sheds His love abroad in my heart so that I cry out, Abba, Father, and so on. All of that is not actually about John. Even all of that is not actually about me. What God is doing in salvation is saving us and blessing us and being benevolent towards us. But even more ultimately than that, what God is doing is glorifying Himself. Even more ultimately than that, God is working so that we will sing, Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, that we would exalt Him, that we would be impressed with Him, that we would celebrate Him and His work. This is where the emphasis is in the original Song of Moses in Exodus 15, and this is where the emphasis is in the Song of Moses 2.0 and Revelation 15. The emphasis is upon God and upon His glory. Revelation 15 is showing us the glory of God delivering His people through the plagues, through the bowls, to the other side of the sea. Now... Just note before we move on, something that's, I think, too profound to pass over without mentioning it. Note that nowhere in Scripture are we ever, are we New Testament Christians ever said to have to cover our faces in the presence of God. Quite the opposite. In 2 Corinthians 3, we are said to behold the glory of God with unveiled faces. Note, in contrast, the seraphim flying with two wings, covering their feet with two, and covering their faces with two. Just think of the immense privilege that we're going to have when we get to the other side of that sea of glass. To behold God with unveiled faces. And to see and to perceive in a way that we have never to date perceived. Just how great and amazing is our God. How great and amazing are His deeds. So the glory presented to us in chapter 15 is that though God plagues this world in His judgment, we will be brought safely through. 
brought across the sea of crystal to heaven, where we will behold him with unveiled faces and sing a song of deliverance. Revelation 15 shows us the glory of God and salvation. But this is not the only glory presented to us in this section of Revelation. There is also the glory of the judgment of the bulls. Now typically people will consider salvation glorious and judgment not so. They find heaven glorious, but they find hell repulsive. Listen, there's something right about that disposition, actually. Because even God tells us that He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so we don't want to talk about the glory of judgment and hell in a way that makes it sound as if we are gleeful about the torment of unbelievers. However, the Scripture plainly teaches us not only that there is judgment and hell, but in fact that God's glory is manifest in His judgment as well as in salvation. Consider Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, which makes that point. What if God, desiring to show what? His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. What makes known the riches of God's glory for vessels of mercy in the verse that I just read for you? It is the making known of His power and the showing of His wrath. So we know already, and I think we can take for granted, that the Scripture teaches elsewhere, and in fact even in Romans 9, that God shows forth His glory also in salvation. But in the verse that I just read to you, it tells us explicitly that part of what helps us perceive the riches of God's glory is that we see His wrath, is that we see His power. So, by good and necessary consequence then, this is an inescapable deduction. It is not possible that it be otherwise. If we did not see God's wrath, if we did not see God's power, there would be something that we would not perceive of His glory. doesn't mean we wouldn't see any glory, but we wouldn't perceive the fullness, the variation, the multi-dimensionality of God's glory, the way that we do in seeing His wrath and seeing His power. This is what Romans 9 tells us. So there is a glory to judgment. There's a weight to it. There's a significance to it. Again, We ought to see God's glory and think to ourselves, wow, this is powerful. This is significant. This is not neither here nor there. This is not just 
triviality. But there's something here that's weighty. Something here that matters. Here in Revelation 16, as the bowl judgments are prepared, the scene is reminiscent of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. When Solomon was praying on the occasion of the dedication of the temple, and it says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Indeed, God is good, and so, therefore, He punishes evil. God is good, and therefore, there are the seven bowls. God is good, therefore, as the seven bowls are prepared, there is smoke from the glory of God and from His power, reminiscent of this historical incident in 2 Chronicles 7. Where at that time the priests couldn't even enter the temple because of the glory of the Lord. So it is here. It says no one could enter the sanctuary. Well, the glory of God, which pertains to the impending bowls, or the corresponding bowls, was there. There are three aspects in which this glorious judgment is presented to us. First of all, There are plagues. I read it to you earlier in the service. Painful sores. The sea becoming like blood. Rivers and springs of water like blood. The sun scorching people with fierce heat. Darkness, etc., etc. Verse 9 tells us that people were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of the Lord who had power over these Plagues. Again, as I've told you, Revelation is constantly reaching back to earlier historical events, things that have already happened by the time that this book of Revelation is written, and it alludes to them. And it tells us, essentially, through the imagery, just as God plagued the Egyptians back in those days, God still pours out plagues upon the enemies of His people in today's day and age. Just as there was a Babylon then, there's a Babylon now, so on and so forth. This is what Revelation is constantly doing. It's constantly reaching back to earlier things and alluding to them. Here we have an allusion again to plagues. I think we're familiar enough with the narrative, even as I just gave a brief review of it earlier in the sermon, that I don't need to belabor this point. What God is doing here is He is plaguing the ungodly unbelieving world for their recalcitrance in rejecting Him, rejecting His Lordship, rejecting His salvation, rejecting His glory, as well as He's pouring out His plagues upon these people for the persecution of His saints. And so just as the plagues upon Egypt came not only on account of Egypt's idolatry, but also as a rescue 
for the enslavement and the mistreatment of the Israelite people. So the plagues in Revelation 16 come not only as a punishment for the idolatry of the unbelieving world, but also as a rescue for God's people. And we see that explicitly in what the angel says in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 16. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So we're clearly to see this as God rescuing and vindicating His people, as well as just punishing the idolatry of the unbelieving world. So plagues is one aspect in which this is presented to us. The second way in which these bold judgments are presented to us is the overcoming of what we might call the false trinity or the anti-trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the second beast, or as he is called here in Revelation 16, the prophet and all who follow them. Many commentators have noted that there is, just as these unholy three pose as saviors, pose as gods, even, even pose as a lamb, does the second beast. These are essentially antithetical counterfeits to the true and living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so those, these three, the, this false trinity or this anti-trinity, these three gather together the whole world against God. We see that demonic spirits come forth from their mouths in John's vision. And they go abroad to assemble the kings of the world together in Revelation 16, 14. And they assembled them at that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, again, as I've been saying all the way through here, I don't think that we need to take all of these things as, as literal things and specific places and so on and so forth. But in this vision that John sees, all of these are assembled out of place. Right? We see in way back in Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. If you were to envision that, what would that look like? The kings of the earth and the rulers gathering themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. I think it would look a lot like this. From the mouth of the dragon, and the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet, I saw three unclean spirits. They are demonic spirits going abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble themselves for battle. Isn't that just thematically exactly what Psalm 2 is talking about? When we read in Psalm 2, he who sits in heaven just laughs. <laughs> this great battle of Armageddon is like a joke to God. It's nothing. In fact, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, listen, listen how fierce and, and, and close 
and tight this battle is going to be. How, how narrow the margin of victory. Listen, listen here. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. <laughs> Look, if this is a literal battle, it's going to be a quick one. Because as soon as Jesus literally just appears, right? victory, the breath of his mouth, right? This is not, this is not something that, if I can say this reverently, this is not something that God is stressing out about. This is not that it's something that Jesus is worried about. When we know that we have to go deal with a messy situation, we get, we get wound up about it. We get anxious about it. Let's say you have a conflict and you need to go work it out. Let's say that you know someone wants to fight you and you need to go out in the schoolyard or whatever, right? You've got to walk down that street at night. Look, we stress about stuff like this. But the kings of the earth gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointing. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. Look, when Jesus returns, it's not going to be close. It's not going to be a toss-up. It's not, it's not going to be a narrow marginal victory. The scripture doesn't present it to us in these terms. And it's like, yes, God is powerful, but don't forget about the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. You know, don't forget about the armies that gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. The way the scripture presents it to us is that God says, look, I've set my son on my holy hill in Zion. And there's nothing anyone's going to do about it. It's ludicrous that you would gather yourselves together against me and against my anointed. Remember who our God is. He is Lord God the Almighty. He is King of the nations. Whoever poses on that day as King of the nations, leading this anti-God army, is going to find out who the true king of the nations is. That's the second way that this bold judgment is presented to us. One is plagues. One is overcoming the assembly of the ungodly at Armageddon. And the third is the making of Babylon to drink the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And again here, Babylon, I don't think, means literally just a restored, that ancient city restored and so on and so forth. But this is symbolic here. As there was a Babylon then, there's a Babylon now, and Babylon till the end of time when Jesus returns. But when he does, he makes this city drink the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And in fact, if you think about a city drinking a cup, well, either the city has to be symbolic or the cup has to be symbolic or both because obviously when you just think about the mechanics of a city drinking a cup, you realize symbolism is happening here, right? So these are the three ways that the judgment is presented to us. Plagues, which is reminiscent of Egypt and the deliverance from Egypt, and the judgment upon Egypt. Secondly, overcoming the assembly of the ungodly at Armageddon. And thirdly, the destruction of Babylon, symbolized by her drinking the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. 
This is this glorious salvation of God's people rescued from the ungodly. This is their vindication. This is retribution. This is they will no longer be able to hurt you anymore. You're going to be safe now, so on and so forth. But this is great and terrible judgment upon those who are outside of Christ Jesus. And these are the threefold ways this is presented to us. Plagues, drinking God's wrath, and overcoming the assembly of the ungodly at Armageddon. And then at the end of this passage comes the familiar refrain. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, which is what we see at the end of other cycles as well, marking for us, this is the end of another cycle. God's salvation is glorious. God's judgment of the ungodly is glorious. Both of these things are glorious. God shows forth that He is a God who is full of love and compassion and mercy and grace. He also shows forth that He is a God who does not wink at sin. He's of purer eyes than to behold evil. That He is not just going to lower the bar and let someone in. He's not going to be talked out of it by someone who... You know, we all, we all know those guys that try to talk themselves out of any and every situation, right? Whether it be getting in trouble with their parents, whether it be getting in trouble with their employer, whether it be getting in trouble with the police, whatever. We all know these guys. And sometimes they're successful. Sometimes it's amazing just how these smooth talkers seem to succeed. But there's going to be no smooth talking of God on that day. Because God's not fooled. What people say is true. Well, God knows my heart. Yeah, that, that is true. God knows that it is de- desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. God is going to know that you're trying to smooth talk Him and get out of it. And God's wrath is serious business. And there's something so good and so wholesome about it because it is rescue. Because it is justice. Because evil doesn't then get the last word. Because everything is made right. Because it results in safety and protection for those who need it, and so on and so forth. God's salvation is glorious, and God's judgment is glorious. Now, if God is so just that He's going to play the unbelieving, ungodly world and make Babylon drink the cup of His wrath, and overcome the ungodly alliance and army at Armageddon. Then how can we possibly hope as sinners to get to the other side of that glassy sea? How can we possibly hope that we will not be plagued? That we will not have to drink the cup of God's wrath? That we will not be in that army assembled against God at Armageddon? The answer is this. Christ was plagued for us. That Christ was killed for us. Like a soldier falls in battle at Armageddon. God's wrath landed upon and killed His only begotten Son, 
Christ said in the garden, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. You know what cup that was? That was the cup that Babylon has to drink at the end of Revelation 16. The cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. There was a wolf in sheep's clothing up in Canada many years ago who denied penal substitutionary atonement, which means that Jesus substituted himself for us to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And uh, it became somewhat of a controversy because for some reason, a bunch of conservative pastors were giving this guy uh, some credence and some credibility and kind of defending him and stuff, which was nonsense because that's the gospel. So I prepared a thorough defense of penal substitutionary atonement, just looking at this idea of what was Jesus, what cup was it that Jesus drank that he wished would pass from him. And suffice it to say, I mean, this is a bit of a, a bit of a tangent, I guess. You can go listen to the sermon for a more thorough defense, but suffice it to say that the vast, 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 vast majority of cups in Scripture are either literally a literal cup that like someone gave him a cup of water to drink or it's symbolic of the cup of God's wrath. That's pretty much more or less how the data falls and it's like 95%. The cup that Jesus wanted to pass from him in the garden was unmistakably, beyond all reasonable doubt, the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. So he drank what Babylon had to drink. He was plagued on our behalf. He was killed like a soldier at Armageddon. So that we wouldn't have to be plagued. So that we wouldn't have to drink this cup. So that we won't have to line up at Armageddon against God, but can be among those whom he brings with him when he descends. What is your response? The way we are spared these fates that the ungodly and unbelieving world experiences here in this seven bowls cycle. The way we are spared these fates is Christ taking these for us. What is your response? I want you to notice the hard-hearted, unrepentant. In 16.9, They were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. They cursed the God of heaven, verse 11, for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Great hailstones, verse 21. About 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. And then ultimately, the, the, the most pronounced act of obstinacy is literally to gather themselves for war against God, described in 1616. What is, what is your response? When you hear about the judgment of God, <laughs> You hear about the rescue 
that is in Christ Jesus. About Christ substituting Himself for us that we may be spared these things. Why wouldn't you come to Christ Jesus in repentance of faith? Why wouldn't you say, well, I don't want to be plagued. I don't want to drink the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. I don't want to be there lined up against God at Armageddon when Jesus is going to kill the lawless one with the breath of His coming. The appearance, His mere appearance and the battle is over. I don't want to be on that side of things. Why wouldn't you come to Jesus? You know just how sinful the sinfulness of man is. Is that even though all of these things are being poured out upon these people in Revelation 16. John sees them cursing God, hardening their hearts, and still they won't even repent. When you read the Ten Plagues narrative back in Exodus, don't you sometimes just think, why wouldn't Pharaoh just let the people go? Don't you just think that? When I read through, I'm like, come on, man. You can't see what's happening here? Let the people go. And do you realize that toward the end of the plague, even his own advisors say that? Do you realize that? Go read it again. It would take you less than an hour to read the first 15 chapters of Exodus. Even There's a point where even his own advisors are like, can't you see? Egypt is ruined. Let the people go. But sin is not rational. Sin is not logical. Sin is pervasive. Sin runs deep. Look, it, what I'm telling you today is not a complicated thing. Even, even a morally neutral caveman could make the right decision here. Should you be plagued or not be plagued? Should you be on God's side or against God? Right? <laughs> this, this trope we have of the Neanderthal. If he didn't have sin in himself, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and blinding himself, even he could say, I choose no plague. Be on God's side. Right? Listen, and I'm not trying to make fun of unbelievers. What I'm trying to do though is I'm trying to say you've got to be honest with your heart about the level of irrationality and the level of self-deception. The level of stubbornness and the level of hard-heartedness that would hear something so plain so simple that we're all sinners and we're all under God's wrath and the only way to be saved is Jesus. And you would still tell yourself, no, I'm not going to come to Jesus. I'm not going to turn away from my sin. I'm not going to believe in Him. In fact, if God plagues me, I'm going to curse God and still not repent. I'm not trying to make fun of your intellect if you're an unbeliever. What I'm trying to tell you is it's actually not your intellect that's keeping you from God. You may tell yourself it is, but the rational decision is clear. So clear that a Neanderthal could make the right choice. What's keeping you back is not your intellect. What's keeping you back is your hard-heartedness, your sin, 
the fact that you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Be honest with yourself. At the end of the day, you don't have to answer to me. But there's coming a day when you do have to answer to God. What is your response? Estimate the guilt of sin by the judgment here presented to us in this passage, just how bad sin is. And then estimate the work of Christ rightly that He has presented to us in Scripture as substituting Himself for us in these respects. What a glorious Savior that is who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us, for our salvation.